0: Ellen Krueger. Ellen, you like this song. <laughs> hey, it's nice to have Tom you Petty. here. <laughs> a professor of economics at uh, Princeton University, former head of the Council of Economic Advisers under President Obama, normally based in Princeton, but obviously a tennis fan. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And a but... pretty good
1: tennis player from what we understand.
0: <laughs> but you were recently at Jackson Hole, and I'd love to start there because you dug into a topic that I think we're all trying to get our head around, and why aren't wages going up? Tell me what you looked at and maybe if you made any conclusions.
2: First, it was a great honor for me to be invited to give the keynote lunch speech at Jackson Hall, And I addressed the question of why aren't we seeing stronger wage growth with the unemployment rate below 4%. Uh, there are many possible explanations. Uh, I don't think any of them explain the full story. So that led me to look at changes in the competitiveness of the labor market. And I think in many respects, the job market has become less competitive companies in many cases have non-compete agreements. Almost a quarter of the workforce is covered by a non-compete agreement on their current job or from a previous job. We learned that many franchise companies have agreements among the franchise owners, right. not to hire workers away from other franchise companies. And at the same time, the kinds of forces that would normally counteract this uh, employer power have been weaker. The value of the minimum wage is lower today than it was 20 years ago, Unions are much weaker than they were. So the forces that would normally counter what we call monopsony power, or market power on the side of employers, yeah, are y- weaker.
0: You have to talk about this, because in your speech you use this term monopsony. What exactly does it mean? Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Technically, monopsony means one buyer. Yeah. And the, the wow. Greek translation means one buyer of fish. Oh, <laughs> okay. but, but when Joan Robinson wrote a whole book on monopsony in the 1930s, she adopted the term to talk about company towns, where you have just one employer who faces an upward sloping supply curve, which means that to get more workers, the firm would have to pay more, Right. and not only pay more for the new workers, but for the existing workers. And that creates a different dynamic than one sees in perfect competition. Now, the term has been applied more generally because one of the, the things that we've learned about the job market is that companies can have this kind of market power even if they're not the only company in town mm-hmm. because workers are reluctant to leave. Uh, they, they, they build up some loyalty or it's costly for them to move. The frictions in the job market give employers some bargaining power over their workers, some monopsony power.
1: So there's certainly a political element <laughs> in everything that you've yes. said resonates, I think, a lot to anyone who's listening who's lived in America, uh, certainly through the last election cycle and, and as we look toward the midterms. I, I do want to, uh, to ask you, though, Given that you said this to a very esteemed audience last Friday in Jackson Hole, what was the response? What did people say to you? And what do you th- suggest that the Fed and other central bankers do about this?
2: Well, those are two separate questions. Yeah. And the talk fit in with the theme of the Jackson Hole conference because the theme was on changes in the market structure, not just in the labor market, which right. I concentrate on. But also, if you look at the product market, more and more industries are dominated by superstar firms. You see that in high tech, you see that in other industries. And I think that's part of the same phenomenon because we're seeing increased employer concentration, increased corporate concentration, and that's having an effect on on workers. Uh, I think there was a reasonable amount of receptivity. Someone joked on Twitter that I probably caused the central bankers a lot of indigestion speaking <laughs> over lunch. I didn't, I didn't sense that in the room. Uh, the questions I got were very good. And the implications for monetary policy are actually unclear because uh, Milton Friedman recognized that the job market was imperfect. Yeah. And he thought that gets counted into the natural rate of unemployment. It affects potential output and there's not much a central bank could do about it.
0: Well that's, well, that's what I was going to say. So can the central bank, bank do anything? Can government, can policymakers do anything to kind of change this?
2: I think there are many things that policymakers can do. Antitrust policy could right. try to rein in some of the anti-competitive policies. And Does that
0: include an in Amazon?
2: Uh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, Amazon uh, has warehouse workers sign non-compete agreements, which restricts their options and gives Amazon more, wow. more bargaining power. Uh, I think that practice has has truly run amok, and some states are reining it in. I think the federal government should get involved. There are some legitimate uses of non-compete agreements, and there are many cases, Jimmy John's did not need to have non-compete agreements for the submarine sandwich makers (laughs) um, in their their restaurants. Um, So there's antitrust policy, but there's also an interesting question, which is if the Fed does run the economy hotter than it otherwise would, would that cause such tightness that some of these practices break down? And implicitly, I think in some cases, employers are reluctant to raise wages, perhaps because there's an implicit agreement among employers or it's frowned upon. This is something Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations 200 years ago. And that type of an implicit arrangement could break down if the job market gets very tight.
1: And so where does it go from here, especially given the mood around antitrust in Washington right now. If, if I read it right, your speech sounded a little bit optimistic when it came to you know some of what we're seeing in terms of antitrust. We have about 30 seconds, and then we're going to make Bring you, you stick around.
2: <laughs> well, it's possible that we'll see some action on the antitrust front. In October of 2016, the Justice Department and Federal Trade Commission issued guidelines which said that wage-fixing agreements and no poaching agreements are illegal. The current Uh, antitrust division at the Justice Department has said they're going to enforce those and we're waiting to see what enforcement actions take place so there may be some actions which starts to uh, 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 cause human resource offices to be more cautious about coordinating in their pay and hiring practices.
1: Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser here at the US Open and still with us Alan Krueger Princeton economist He is the man that knows all. He was at Jackson Hole last week talking to the policymakers there, the central bankers, about what wage or lack of wage growth uh, could mean. So, Alan, bring us a little closer to home. Uh, Semester's about to start. (laughs) You've got a fresh crop of students uh, coming in. We were talking in the break, and, and you mentioned this is a group of students they don't. They don't know anything other than a bull market. They don't remember the crisis unless they were very, very precocious, you know, eight or nine year olds. Um, what are they like? What are they thinking about? What do they think about the global economy? And what
0: do they want to know about? Yeah.
2: Well, the students are more international. They are are more informed. I think that's something that social media does. Um, the Princeton students all have excellence in some area. I've found um, different academic subjects, different extracurricular activities, Um, but the financial crisis is a distant memory for them. They were maybe starting middle school at the time. Uh, I think they're career oriented, I think they are public service oriented, Um, and they're very much engaged, they really throw themselves into what they do, Um, but it's a little different than it was 10 years ago when I had a course on the financial crisis.
0: Very different. Well, it's funny you say that, and I agree with you, a younger generation, that they're very socially conscious and public service minded. And I think about the gap going back to kind of what you talked about at Jackson Hole, this whole idea of, you know, no wage growth. And it creates that a deeper and deeper gap between the haves and have nots, I think, in terms of financially. And I think that is something that we've got to fix. Um, do you see any signs of it getting any better?
2: Sadly, I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. If you look at social mobility in the US, uh, the chance of children having a higher income than their parents when they enter the job market and have some experience has gone way down over the last 50 years. And I don't see how this picture improves. We're, We're not putting more resources into helping children from disadvantaged families. We're actually doing the opposite. And I think education matters more today than it ever has in the US. So children from disadvantaged backgrounds are already starting a step behind, and it's gonna be, uh, I fear, harder for them to catch up unless we put more resources into schools and more disadvantaged areas. Which is
0: crazy, too, because we do put a fair amount of resources, but sometimes it's misallocated and not used well, I feel like.
2: Oh, well, I think that's right. We, we, we spend a lot. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing more important for the future of the I U.S. Agree. than investing in the human capital of our workforce and our people.
1: So 10 years ago, you were teaching about the financial crisis as it really set in. We're 10 years on. <laughs> we're about to embark on a month of remembrances, it feels like. And looking back, looking forward, we're going to talk later on about BlackRock's dominance going forward. Economically, what's, what's been the biggest surprise for you post-crisis and in this sort of 10 years on?
2: I think how slow things have been, Um, uh, especially what we were talking about before to see wage growth. Um, The the financial system did not collapse, I think, thanks to the efforts of the Federal Reserve Board and the U.S. Treasury under both Secretary Paulson and Secretary Geithner. Mm -hmm. The housing market came back a little bit faster than than I expected on average. There are are areas where it's still lagging behind, but nationally it's back to where it was pre-crisis. And it took a long, long time for the scars to heal in the job market, and they're still not totally healed.
0: Well, you know, speaking of another story we talk about um, this week, it has to do from Josh Green, that just how the seeds were kind of sown back in the financial crisis, in that there weren't really any senior executives really held accountable for what happened, while many, you know, average Joes on Wall Street lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their savings, um, and that that's maybe why we're where we are politically and the ramifications of that.
2: I think there's a lot to that argument. I I think the financial crisis is fundamentally unfair because to prevent the situation from getting worse, you have to help the arsonists. You have to help those who set the financial system on fire. Otherwise, you risk a second Great Depression. So uh, I think Mm. that's a fundamentally unfair aspect of our economic system. I think we should have done more at the time uh, to help those uh, who were struggling to keep their homes, struggling in the job market. Um, and I think we would be in a stronger position today had we done that, and hopefully that's a lesson that we learned for the next crisis.
0: So we did say 40 seconds. Tennis. <laughs> what are you looking forward to at the US Open this year?
2: Well, I always love to watch Roger Federer. He's got such a beautiful game. He's so graceful on the court uh, and graceful off the court. Uh, this is a great tournament. Um, I look forward to seeing Serena play. I think it's unfortunate she has to play... Venus so early. So early, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I watched her play Venus in the semifinals here. I think it was 2008. Yep. And I, I, I came to that match. I thought this might be the last time I ever get to see them play again here. <laughs> Little amazing? did I know. Here we
1: are. It's amazing. It's amazing. Federer, I believe, playing later this afternoon, if, if, if I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, he's
2: playing in Ash uh, this afternoon. But unfortunately, my seat is in Armstrong. Oh. So, <laughs> so I, I will be watching that on the screen, maybe. You'll have to tune in uh, another way.
1: All right. Alan Krueger. Thank Kruger, you so much. Princeton and of course, uh, joining us here at the U.S. Open. What a great conversation. We wish you only the best, uh, and uh, and happy watching this yeah, tournament. Stay thank cool. You. Thanks so much.
2: All right,
1: well, here at the U.S. Open, we are joined by one of our absolute favorites. That's John Musso. He is president, chief executive officer, and director of fixed income at Cumberland Advisors. I believe he lives now down in Sarasota, Florida. Former New Jersey guy. Most importantly, a Georgetown Hoya. Got to mention that. He's also uh, author of a great book called Adventures in Muniland. John, great to be with us. Thanks. Great to have you with us, I should say.
3: Jason, great to be here. Good Uh, to see
1: you guys. Thanks for taking a break from from the tennis, as they say. So one of the things I want to ask you about, because it was... In my notes here, and it really jumped out, was every time we write a story about these state and local tax deductions and the workarounds and everything that's happening, in especially here in the tri-state area, it goes to the top of the charts on, <laughs> on Bloomberg. Yeah. What's the market impact of that, especially in Muniland?
3: There's really two market impacts. One is on the bond finance side, and people in high-tax states like New York and California uh, if they bought out-of-state bonds, they would now pay the state tax at the full rate um. without a deduction. So the demand for bonds from high-tax states has never been higher, Cal, New York, New Jersey. So that's on the bond side. On the finance side, the issue is going to be next year when people suddenly realize that, hey, guys, I need lower taxes. What? What's If states cut taxes, where are they going to get the money? They're going to turn to the counties and and, and, and towns and say, we're not giving you the aid we are. Those towns and cities are going to say, well, now we, people can't deduct their property taxes, and they're going to be looking for relief. So the real question is, if people start to cut taxes to satisfy their citizens but don't cut expenses, debt service coverage goes down, and you run the risk of seeing you know, um, at least ratings declines. you have g- to write a sequel to your book. God yeah.
0: for, and God forbid the economy starts to come undone. Well, on you know, top of it,
3: right now the economy is doing pretty well, which is why the Fed is on the path that they're on. Uh, it's why you see, you know, help wanted signs in places that you haven't seen them in many, many years. So the economy is still doing well. I would suggest that some of the metrics in housing are starting to slow a little bit.
1: And what are you seeing that makes you think that? What specific what specific data out there is leading to that conclusion?
3: Well, if you look if you look at the uh, time that homes are on the market, yeah. especially in cities like. Uh, Seattle, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, these hot northern Virginia near D.C., these hot, hot, hot markets where houses were on the market at tops three to four weeks. Now they're on three to four or five months. It's a big difference. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's a price decline, and it doesn't mean that it's still not a seller's market, but it is slowing from a seller's market, moving, moving in between.
0: So how do you reconcile things like that, help wanted signs with, I feel like every other day or every day we have a conversation about the flattening yield curve. How do you pull those all together?
3: Well, let's work backwards. The flattening yield curve, we still know Fed funds at 2. It's very clear they're going to be going to at least 3. What happens to longer yields? Remember, one thing that has happened in the Treasury market this year has been unprecedented demand from corporations buying long Treasuries, stripping them, and funding unfunded pension plans. Mm-hmm. The reason for doing it, their tax rate flips over on September 15th from 35% to 21%. So they get a, a larger deduction now for doing it. Um, plus, they don't pay the penalty that they would next year for having a greater unfunded plan by the Pension Guarantee Corp. So we're going to find out for the first auction after September 15th whether some of the demand uh, on Treasuries cools. So you may get a, f- a steeper sh- yield curve from longer yields finally moving up. Okay.
1: We were joking uh, off air that we're in the midst of a power hour here at the U.S. Open. Uh, you, the seat you're in was uh, occupied just a few minutes ago by Alan Kruger. And we were talking to him about a speech that he gave last week, the keynote luncheon speech uh, at Jackson Hole, where he was talking about this stagnant wage growth and essentially saying, I'm not sure if there's any monetary policy that can help fix this. There may be some things on the fiscal, on the on the policy side, on the government side. What do you make of that? What, do you, what would you advise the, the Fed to do right now, uh, given the landscape you see?
3: I think the Fed's on the right path. Uh, they're not making changes every meeting. They're doing it slowly, gradually, recognizing that we were in the funk for the long time that we were. Uh, I do think towards the part about wage growth is there is still a large segment of people that are working part-time where they'd like to work full-time and can't. There's still people that are working in jobs that they got downsized to would like better jobs that they had pre-recession going right. back a number of years. You need to clear that out in form of higher wages before you get a higher wage growth that seeps into the general inflation rate.
1: I feel like I'm going to become a broker record right. on this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. Ten years on the, from the financial crisis, I feel like power has shifted from the sell side to the buy side, from the bankers to the investors. You're an investor. What do you feel about that?
3: Couldn't agree more. It's because spreads have narrowed. I mean, you see deals in the bond world being done for 50 cents, 75 cents. These are deals that if you went back, geez, Louise, 35 years ago, they were working for 3 to 3.5% three on deals. It, it's a big difference.
0: So when you look at the at the market environment, I mean, we, you know, it is record after record. We have gotten to a point, kind of back in the studio, it's like, well, ho hum. Here we go again. Amazon above two thousand. Um, can it continue much longer? Are the economic market profit outlooks still there?
3: Look, you know, I think you're still in the first stages of the market enjoying what will be this tax cut. First so stages. First, for, for stages, and and wow. think think about it. I mean. The tax cut itself, what it will add to S&P earnings this year, you don't know. It could be $15 a share, $18 a share. The point of it is is that the market is going to assign a higher P.E. multiple to that than it will for general earnings because this is permanent and earnings are subject to the earnings cycle. So that is just starting to play out, I think.
1: And on the fixed income side, I mean, what are you what are you seeing generally in terms of that trend? We talked we talked about uh, policy. Where, where are you sort of advising uh, people to go in in that respect, especially given everything that's going on that you just described in the <laughs> equity yeah. market?
3: Given what the Fed is doing, we're putting portfolios together that are generally in a barbell method with. Bond's on the front end of the curve that can turn over fast. Think about a squirrel running in a cage. (laughs) And Bond needs on the longer side to basically take advantage of the fact that even though nominally low, look at longer U.S. yields versus Germany, France, England, Japan. Uh, if you were in charge of a sovereign wealth fund and putting it together, yeah. you'd pick the U.S. hands down. So right. that's going to act as a tether for a while.
0: Just got about a minute left here. You're normally in Florida, which is why this 88-degree heat is, doesn't seem Nothing to phase you. No. Um, what are you looking forward to here at the Open? You,
3: you know, the, the greatest part about it is that you get new names in here, and a, a new story gets written every year that you don't know about. Uh I'm picking uh, Wozniak and Nadal to win this year. I, I like it. I, 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 Rafa. That's yeah. a bold call. I yeah, love it. Yeah, it's, it's not that bold. But, it, it's, <laughs> but you know, you, you, you see people like, uh, you know, Alexander Zverev playing yep. there. He's number four in the world, 21 years old. There's a new story being written as we sit here. I love right. that kind of stuff.
1: John Musso, President, Chief Executive Officer, Director of Fixed Income, Cumberland Advisors. We're going to let you get back to cheering those guys on. Thanks so much.
0: So, yeah, it's all about the matches. It's all about the athletes. But behind it is so much technology from AI in the cloud to actually a virtual concierge. IBM is involved in that big time here at the U.S. Open, designing, hosting, all of the U.S. Open's digital platforms. Elizabeth O'Brien knows all about it. She's program director of worldwide sponsorship and entertainment partnership marketing at IBM. Big title. <laughs> it's a long title, yes. <laughs> She's with us on site at the U.S. Open. So nice to have you here. Thanks. Um, we were talking about how much we love this event. There's so much going on. You guys are really involved in it and have been for some time. Tell us a little bit about specifically what you guys are working on. Well,
4: you know, this is, we, we, we've been here for over 25 years. Yeah, um, And so we were here before the web even was a thing, right? So we did the first website for uh, for the U.S. Open, um, and we've sort of built up the technology every year, and it's, you know, we, we keep setting bars <laughs> for ourselves to exceed, um, which is really fun um, and a good challenge, but, um, you know, I would say that, um, you know, we, we basically start with the USTA, what their business right. goals are for this two weeks of the year that they have to sort of, you know, make their revenue that's going to fund their programs for the rest of the year, to grow the game of tennis, to drive excitement they have you know, 700,000 people on the grounds here, but over 10 million more um, accessing the tournament on digital platforms. And so that's the challenge is how do we help them bring that tournament to other people? And even the people who can come here, they want to sort of follow the rest of the tournament when they go home. And so the digital platforms help them do that. And um, it's that much more engaging if you can have insight into what your favorite players are doing. Or oh, you know, I missed that. I really want to see that. Um, People want more and more. They do. They want more and more, and they want to see, they want to understand it more. Um, you know, Everyone has sort of their latent commentator inside, right? They want to know more. They want right. to be the expert on their favorite players. And so, you know, we expose a lot of um, the data and analytics um, that, that that really describes how the players play. And it's the same kind of information that the commentators look at when they're talking mm-hmm. about players. And we expose that to fans. and. Um, you know, help them understand the game better. Right. Um, but, you know, as a basic uh, as a basic level, you know, we we let them see the scores. You know, right. That's the most popular right. feature on any of the digital platforms is what's the score and who's playing. And, um, and
1: what about for the players? Because I feel like players have become so much more sophisticated. They have these teams working for them. And increasingly, those coaches, those trainers have to be essentially tech-enabled to be able to, to study and sharpen the game, in every facet. So, what are you seeing there?
4: Yeah, I think it's I think it's less, um, you know, tech enabled for the coaches than it is sort of exposing the information that they need. Interesting, right? which is the same thing we do for fans. Fans don't have to be tech gurus, but we have to get them the information the way they want it and the way they can consume it. So this year what we've done is we took um, some of the work we've been doing for fans and commentators over the years and we said, you know, let's look at how we can serve the USTA in a different way. How can we help their player development organization? Mm. The USTA has just built the home of American tennis down in Orlando and they're really trying to, um, you know, um, fill the pipeline with American players coming up with the goal of having, you know, American champions at the US Open and the Grand Slams. Um, And so for them to do that, they've got to understand sort of who's playing and how are they playing and help the coaches um, coach the players. And so the model I'll just give you quickly down in Orlando is that players don't go and live there for years and years. They come in, they train and they go back to their home coaches. So the USCA works back and forth with USCA coaches and home coaches collaborating together and, um, you know, to help players of sort of all levels coming up into the professional ranks, including some of the top American players. Um, and so we help with the video work we do uh, at the U.S. Open. We're helping player development analyze that video. Watson is watching video of players. Watson. Playing in- Watson. Watson. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Watson is watching videos of You knew of he players. was going to come into the
1: conversation oh. at some
5: point.
4: Yes, yes. Well, Watson is here in spades at the U.S. Open, whether it's, you know, on-site figuring out where to get food, figuring out where to watch a match, figuring out, you know, sort of, Um, you know, what highlights you want to watch of your favorite players. Watson is here, but Watson is also in Orlando and everywhere watching players play and identifying, um, you know, key elements of their games um, and helping coaches to sort of
0: spot, um, you know, key moments and key patterns that they can use to develop players. Can Watson kind of start, I don't know, one of the matches here and kind of identify like, okay, folks, something interesting is coming up. I mean, I, I... Give me an idea of how you know sophisticated this is all getting. So well, we and inter- predictive.
4: We, we introduced AI highlights. And we have about forty seconds. Sorry. Okay. We introduced AI highlights last year, where Watson actually watches matches and it identifies player gestures, fist pumps. It listens to the <laughs> crowd noise and it listens to the commentator tone and it watches the match score. So a break point is more exciting than the first point of the match. And wow. it says based on those variables, here are the highlights of the day or here are the highlights for a specific player does the same thing for player development you know in this smaller tournament we're going to watch all of this player's points, and we're going to say this is what they do on their break points. So it's basically using video as a data source. Right. Think I about like it.
0: you could follow patterns, right? Yes. And yeah. how a player reacts. Yes. That's great so stuff. So cool.
1: Great stuff, Elizabeth O'Brien, Program Director of Worldwide Sponsorship and Entertainment Partnership Marketing. I got it all in for IBM. Uh, here with us <laughs> on site at the U.S. <laughs> Open well. here in Flushing, Queens. You're listening. Is
4: there an acronym? Maybe <laughs> uh, I'll have to uh, Watson <laughs> yeah. will help me.
1: Watson will help <laughs> you yeah. with, yeah. with that. Uh, Carol and Jason Kelly here at the US Open. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week.
3: I'm driving my car. Turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive?
5: Oh, no, 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 no. Who's
3: gonna drive you home?
5: Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive.
2: Just drive, baby. Just, drive baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that
1: drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: You actually were dancing to the theme music here. Are you showing me this so that I know who you are? What does it say? Player guest? Oh,
1: oh, he's trying to show off. He's showing off a little bit. Steve Kroll, it's
0: time for the drive to the close. Steve Kroll is back with us at Mona's Crest Heart. Hart. Um, nice to have you here. You're a guest of, can I say it?
5: Yes. He's a Ooh. guest
0: of Serena Williams? Yes. How'd you get to do that?
5: Uh, her agent is a good friend of mine, and uh, we've been good friends for a long time, and uh, she every year helps me out with a player. Uh, players are, you know, guest pass but. uh Serena is great, the whole family is great, and uh, Jill Smoller, the uh, agent who's been her agent, I guess almost 13 years, yeah, um, has, has been b- very kind to me. We and helped her out uh, years ago when she was on the tour, uh, and her first um, client was Pete Sampers, and her second client was uh, Serena. Serena.
0: That's pretty cool. Mm, Pretty
5: good lineup.
0: We were talking to, I mean, you love tennis. We know this. We'll talk about the markets in a moment. But, I mean, Serena and Venus, unbelievable. Tomorrow night? 20 years and counting. It's
5: going to be an epic match. Uh, I love both of them, so it's hard to pick. But sentimentally, this year, I would rather see Venus win. Um, She's 38. Serena's 36. She's going to be 37 uh, next month September. But, uh, you know, Serena's probably not going to (laughs) play... too many more years, so I would just like to have her win one. Nothing against Serena, and I hope she doesn't yell at me because uh, she's great. And, and there, you know, people forget. It's really something here. to be wearing a badge that says Serena Williams <laughs> Wait, and oh, I'm sorry, sister to is her. That's that's Serena's sweet. entourage <laughs> yes. saying, give me no. the, the badge yeah. back, no, no, you're no, out of no, here? No. The, the thing that's interesting is Serena's won uh, in finals uh, 92 times over the years. And um, Venus has won forty nine times, and twelve hey, of Serena's wins were against her sister. Amazing. So it's 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 you know it's going to be an epic epic match.
1: And you make a great point about the longevity of their careers. You know, we had Alan Kruger sitting with us earlier, famous Princeton economist, as you know, and he was saying he saw the two of them play here, I believe, in two thousand eight, and he thought, "Well, this may That's be the it. last time I see them play <laughs> against each other." That was. He's, he's a man of many, many good predictions. That was not a good one. <laughs> uh, let's talk a minute, if we can, uh, about the markets because we are driving to the close here. Can we, uh, can we
0: talk about the, one of the most read stories in the past eight hours?
5: Absolutely. Argentina,
0: what's going on? Because you, you, you were talking with Jason and me before we got going. You're watching what's going on here. Yeah,
5: so I think that if we're going to get a correction, we had a correction the first part of the year in January. We really haven't had a significant correction except for individual Uh, Groups, Uh, But if we're going to get a correction, it's going to happen right here and now. And that's because Argentina raised rates today from 45 percent to 60 percent. Their currency is under under real stress today, real stress. And um, Turkey, the same situation. And also there are some other peripheral countries that are all in the same boat. And, you you, you know, everyone said, oh, well, Greece, we got through. But Turkey um, and Argentina have a lot of dollar-based debt. And with the currencies going down, and the dollar going up, that debt is exploding in terms of numbers. So, like in Turkey, given numbers three hundred eighty billion of U.S. debt, now it's seven hundred billion of U.S. debt. Because the way the currencies because the way the currencies are going, which I really kind of forgot about, but it's 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 a it's a death drop is really what's happening because they're getting deeper and deeper and deeper until you can raise your rates high enough to attract money, but. Right now, no one wants to put any money anywhere except for here. So
1: let me ask you a question that's come up a number of times: an observation that leads to a question, which is, you have had this sort of divergence of, especially emerging markets, and the United States, especially in terms of equity performance. Dave Wilson, our stocks charts guru, uh, was with us this morning and talking about the S and P continuing to hit records while the MSCI is down. Correct. So. Does that divergence continue, or at some point do emerging markets start to, for lack of a better term, sort of infect U.S. markets?
5: I think that's what I was trying to say. If it, the correction is uh, going to happen, it's going to happen it's right it, now. Right now. And I, well, I just think that the emerging markets have gotten past the corrective thing to more like now we're really starting to worry okay. our earnings are over with they've been very good so now what do we have to think and talk about i don't think the trade issue uh, except for china is going to be uh, uh, that will be a big deal but it, uh, Mex- uh, mexico and, Ch- and canada i think are pretty well taken care of
1: can i say it's actually refreshing to hear someone who's a little bit worried about something I, because I, I feel like we've had I agree. A, a lot of your compatriots on over the past uh, couple weeks steve Who've said there's nothing to see, everything's great, you know, three to, we had somebody yesterday three say three to five more years of earnings growth, keep on trucking. Um, so I'm glad someone's out there Contingen worrying a on little on some bit. things, though. He did say contingent on
0: trade. So was, but explain the connection, though, between emerging markets and developed markets.
5: Well, investors all over the world uh, put their money in a lot of uh, different areas. And when they start losing uh, in the emerging markets, the money, money starts coming out. Usually then the currencies are under under. Uh, under duress so the money's coming here and in japan to some extent and and great britain but outside of that uh where else are they going to go? So it becomes almost a catch-22. Their currencies go down. Uh, the economy gets a little slower. People are very risk-averse. I mean, if you're in Argentina and you bought the bonds two years ago when they had this great restructuring, you're down almost uh, 90%. Wow. Um, and the same thing now with Turkey. And then you have Brazil, Russia, a few other countries not as bad. But uh, Italy, uh, not as bad. We have seven seven or eight uh, countries that are in Some uh, mode of of duress. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet, our interest rates are higher than most of those countries, which is really an oxymoron. Not for
0: Argentina, though.
5: No, no, but I mean, (laughs) you think Spain? But
0: but don't you think about, no, right, but don't you think about then what does that mean potentially for our central bank and some of the other developed central banks that if there are problems in emerging markets— and if the markets start to come undone.
1: They start to rethink their strategy
0: yeah. a little bit. Well,
5: I think we're going to get a September increase for sure. Yep. That's it. Not December. Not December. No. I think You d- think the world
1: turns enough that dis- by December I they're saying. I think it's going to mm. scare
5: enough people. When you get a currency down 15% in a day and you're probably coming tomorrow, which is a Friday and, and what have you. I think that tends to get people uh, a little nervous. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, clearly September. And then, we're w- then we'll quote, they'll say, we'll wait and see.
1: Right. All right, so last 30 seconds here. Let's get back to tennis. Let's get back okay. to the important stuff. <laughs> okay. uh, beyond tomorrow night, who do you like in each of the, uh, e- each side of the, b- the bracket, men's and women's, well, as we go forward? Well, let's say
5: it's either Serena or Venus, yes. so I don't get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> Sloane Stephens has the bottom part of the draw pretty well. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy for her if she plays reasonably yeah. well. Then you go on the other side of the draw. I like Sharapova. I think she's coming on. She's going to have a tough match with uh, Madison Keys. Yeah. And I also uh, uh, think Gerber has been playing great. But I'll take the sentimental favorite. I'll take uh, uh, Sharapova. But that's a long shot. Yeah. Sharapova to, to win the whole no, thing? No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. All right. Then on the bottom side. Hurry up! Uh, yeah, Carolyn Wozniacki I love. And I think she has a shot to go to the finals. Who, who wins? Um, Venus beats Wozniacki.
1: Wow! I love that call. That's a great call. That's a great call. I love yeah. that, Carol Master.
0: What do we do if he's right? I don't know. Chips from the uh, food court?
1: <laughs> Chips <laughs> from the food court. Water. Absolutely. <laughs> Water. Yeah, exactly. An ice bath. I don't know. Uh, very good. Thank you so much, Steve Cole, Managing Director of Monas Crespi Hart.